I grew up, some of you probably know, I grew up in the country in northern Wisconsin, and my family had quite a bit of land, um, but with quite a bit of land comes uh, lots of chores. There's lots of stuff to be doing upkeep on and, and things to just do around the place. My dad was always coming up with jobs and projects for us to do, and some of these were really um, pretty easy jobs, even though they might have taken a lot of work, we would know how to do them. You mow the lawn, um, go trim the weeds around the trees, or go pick raspberries, or go weed the garden. Like Those were chores where it was like, okay, you know, we, that's, it's not very fun to do, but we know how to do that. And then there was other ones that were maybe like really difficult, but um, we could get them done. Um, I remember one summer my dad's like, I want you to dig a trench from the downspout to the pond. And that was like 50 yards. And he's like, just dig a trench, and we're going to put this you know, corrugated tube in it so it could hook up to the downspout and just go straight from there to the pond. But it was like 50-foot trench, and it was like 8 inches or a foot deep or something. And it was hard to do, um, but I got it done. Or other jobs that are hard were like stain the deck. Oh, geez, like staining the deck, that's just like stinks. It's not a great job. You get a, water, a pressure wash it or whatever you got to do, and then you stain it, and that just wasn't fun. And if he, one of the worst jobs my dad would give us, we always dreaded hearing this, picking rock picking. Rocks. Yes, picking rocks. Oh, my gosh. Have, you ever, have any of you ever picked rocks, done rock picking? I don't know what that means. Once. Yes, okay, very, let me, ex once, let me once. explain it. Okay, so <laughs> farmers or people that, like, make fields or make roads, like, if you're making them out in the woods, you, you're clearing the brush out of the way and you're clearing everything out of the way. Um, but as you do this, you're digging up the soil and there's all these rocks underneath the soil and later on if you want to go through that smoothly with other equipment you don't want to be running into rocks so if my dad makes a field we got to haul all the rocks off the field um, and it's not just once because he's going to go over it again he's like okay there's more rocks that we can't see right under the surface let's go over it again more rocks he could go over it a billion times and there'd still be rocks in that field and my dad would make roads through um, the woods um, and he have to use a grader to like make it you know even a level and stuff and every time we did that rocks and so then we'd have to go pick the rocks off of the road and throw it out into the woods and that was just one of the most horrible jobs so if anybody ever asks you to do that you know, think twice about it it's just hours of bending <laughs> just, over just no. and picking <laughs> just just say no <laughs> but my sister and I remember one of the hardest jobs my ever my dad ever ever gave her particularly, there was this, there was this field, um, probably about the size of a baseball field, um, that was just totally kind of wild, hadn't been done anything with it. Maybe my dad would mow it like once a year, but just kind of this wild field. And what I had growing in it was yellow rocket, which is this really like hardy, um, tough weed, grows like about this tall, just has yellow um, flowers on it, but it's this weed. And my dad's like, okay, I want you to pick all the yellow rocket out of that field. It's like a baseball sized field. And so my sister goes out there, and I don't know how many hours, a couple hours, several hours she was going at this. And she cleared a space, I don't know, it might have been like half the size of this room or like a third of the size of this room in like a couple hours. My dad goes out to check on her and he's like, oh, Never mind. <laughs> this job's way too hard for you to do. You don't have to pick the yellow rocket out of this field. I'll just like mow it or something. But it was just like hours upon hours that she barely got any distance. And it was just this overwhelming thing. And you just imagine my sister being like, I have to pick this whole field and I've made, you know, half of this room in in a, several hours, like this is just too hard. This is overwhelming to do. And she hardly made any progress in that amount of time. But I want us to think about, we've all had situations in our life where we've been 
tasked with something or asked to do something that just seemed like beyond our ability to do. And that situation, my sister was like, this just seems almost impossible, like a beyond my ability to do. And then my dad came and recognized it. Yeah, you know what, this is way you know, hard to do. But how does it feel, I want us to answer this question, how does it feel when someone asks us to do something that's beyond our ability to do? How does that feel if somebody asks you to do something beyond your ability to do? Incredulous. Incredulous. Could you define that word, Brian, for simpletons like me? <laughs> like, how could you ask me to do something like that? It's, it's impossible. So, like, how could you ask me to do this? Yeah. Incredulous. Uh, unbelievable you'd ask. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. I think maybe sometimes if it's a certain type of thing they're asking, like you might be flattered, like, wow, you think I could actually do that? Mm. But like before the reality of what they're asking Whoa. really sinks in. Okay, so you might be flattered because they think you're capable of it or something? Before the reality. Flattered at first. Yeah. Or on the other hand, if you like know that they're aware that you can't do it and are asking you, you're almost kind of like, are you setting me up for failure? So it could mm. go either way. Like what's the catch yeah. or something? Like mm -hmm. maybe, so setting you up for failure, like this is beyond my ability. Are you setting me up for failure? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's, how do you feel when someone asks you to do something beyond your ability? Well, that was, I, I was going to say skeptical, but I think that's setting up for failure. It's kind of like that suspicion of, like, really? Like, what's your motive? Why? What's why your motive? <clears throat> maybe that, maybe uh, the word really is a good way to describe this. Like, really? Like, you're, yeah. you're asking me to do that? That's how I felt sometimes. My dad would be like, you're going to pick this huge road. Really? Come on. Like in the case with your sister in the field, you know, she's already agreed to do it, and she goes out there and she starts picking, and maybe after a couple hours there's despair. Mm -hmm. Despair, yeah. Like, I said I'd do this, but I just can't. Despair, you might not, maybe you have this flattered feeling, but then as you get into the work, all of a sudden you have this despair, like this is just beyond my capabilities. Mm -hmm. Oh no, come on, come on, Pam, do it. Don't despair. Yeah. I think there's also like a fear of disappointing them. Fear. Like, or them finding out, like, oh, I can't do it. Fear of disappointing or um, maybe being found out you can't do it. I, the first word I thought of was crushed. Like, it feels crushing to be given a task I'm unable to do. Like, what? I can't. I was just imagining my sister, like, this just feels crushing. Like, how in the world could I ever finish this? Any other feelings? I guess I would add with this uh, heavy. When I'm given something really big to do and I feel unable to do it, it feels like this heavy weight on my shoulders. Overwhelmed. Overwhelmed? Yeah, that's a good one. Overwhelmed. 
I guess a loan could be a good one too. Like if somebody asks you to do something you're unable to do, and like they're not helping you, and it's like, I just keep imagining my sister out in that field like, are you kidding me? You know, like just feeling a yellow rocket all over the place. Like you just kind of feel alone. Yeah. Let's stop it there unless somebody has one of them for their time. Well, this evening, we're continuing this series, beginning the journey home in the book of Genesis. And as we're following the life of Abram, um, we met him in Genesis 12. Um, we learned that God is going to bring blessing back to the whole world through Abram and his family. But we also have seen... Um, I said right from the beginning that Abram and his wife Sarai are, they just don't have it all together. Like, really? This is the person that you're going to bring blessing to the whole world through God? Like, this is the guy? They're, both Abram and Sarai are this mixed bag of faith and doubt and obedience and disobedience and trusting God and then going their own way. And yet God sticks with them. We've seen through this whole story their unbelief, their sin, their mistakes don't negate God's plan for them. God sticks with them. And throughout Abram and Sarai's story, there's this key issue for them, um, is that Sarai is barren. Um, she hasn't been able to get pregnant, even though God has promised, hey, I'm going to multiply your family. I'm going to make you into a great nation. And then it's like, well, wouldn't you, you know, if you're number one draft pick for someone to make into a great nation, is it going to be an old guy, 75, or 75, yeah, 75 years old, um, and then his wife on the way to being an old, older woman, um, and a wife who's not able to get pregnant. Like, that's not really your number one draft pick for somebody who's you want to make into a great nation. Um, but God keeps telling him, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Your descendants are going to be like the stars in the sky. Um, they're going to be like the sand on the seashore. And God made that promise to Abram when he was 75 years old. In the passage we covered last week, Abram is 85 years old, and they still don't have a child. Ten years they wait. And in this passage, we read right away, Abram is 99 years old, 24 years since God made that promise to him. They've been waiting. And we get impatient with God after waiting a week sometimes, or a day, or a month, or, or a year. And they've been waiting 24 years. But God makes it clear, I'm going to keep this promise. Um, but at this point, it seems just impossible for both of them. And this week, we're not going to do a big question, but we're going to do uh, a big idea that we're going to keep coming back to um, as we go through this passage. And the big idea for this passage is this. God asks us to be and do what's impossible without him. God asks us to be and do what's impossible without him. We're going to cover this passage in two parts as we think about that. God asks us to be and to do what is impossible without him. And the first part of this passage is going to focus on Abram, and the second is going to focus on Sarai. So let's look at part 1 in verses 1 through 15. Let's reread verses 1 and 2, chapter 17. It says, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Again, Abram is 99 years old. It's been 24 years since God first came to him and gave him that promise. And yet Sarai still hasn't become pregnant. And we can assume Abram and Sarai have been doing their part, trying to get pregnant. And yet year after year, month after month, they are not getting pregnant. Um, but yet God has said, I'm going to do this for you. And here at 99 years old, God introduces himself. He says, I am God 
almighty. God almighty, all powerful. All might belongs to him. All strength belongs to him. He's all sufficient. He is God almighty. And Abram needs to be reminded of this. And we're going to see why in just a few moments. And the next God calls Abram, walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant with you and multiply you greatly. And walking with God is this common expression in the Bible. You, you walk with a friend um, in relationship and God calls people to, to walk with him. And we saw it first show up back in Genesis 5. Enoch walked with God. And then Noah in Genesis 6. Noah walked with God and Noah was righteous and blameless. And so the same thing God's wanting from Abraham here is walk with me, be righteous, be blameless, commit to me, love me, obey me, trust me. I want you to walk with me throughout your life. And he wants them to be blameless. I don't want you to have you know, a blemish on your life that would say um, that you're an unrighteous person. And just like Noah walked with God and was blameless um, so that God could use him, um, God wants Abram to walk with him and be blameless so God can use him in his plan. And now, you may be wondering, well, that sounds pretty hard. Be blameless? That sounds like God is asking Abraham to be perfect. Like, don't have a spot in your record. Have no blame that can be brought against you. And that sounds totally impossible. And you may even remember back to Genesis 15 where God first made his covenant with Abraham. He's talking about covenant now. And he made his covenant back in Genesis 15. We covered, um, well, not two weeks ago, but before the baptisms and back to school bash. But... Um, there we saw that God took full responsibility for fulfilling that covenant. God expresses his amazing grace that no matter what you do, Abram, no matter whether you deserve it or not, I am going to fulfill these promises to you. Whether you obey me, whether you're blameless, whether you're perfect or not, I am going to fulfill this to you. And, but now it seems like God's saying something that would contradict that because he's saying, Abram, obey me and be blameless so that I can make my covenant with you. And so what's the deal? Is it grace? God's grace? You don't deserve it. I'm going to give it to you. Or is it walk with me and be blameless so that I can make this covenant with you? And you can think of it as Genesis 15 expressed God's side of the covenant relationship, God's entering relationship with Abraham. But Genesis 17 expresses what God wants from his human partners in that Relationship, And you can think of God's covenants as two sides of the same coin. There's privileges and there's responsibilities. God gives the privileges. They're all out of grace, totally undeserving. They're a free gift. And so God gives privileges. And with that, there's promises, there's relationship, there's his presence, um, there's forgiveness, there's all these things. But at the same time, there's responsibilities. God asks something of us in that relationship. And he calls us to, to love him above all else and to love others as ourselves. He calls us to obey him and submit to him. And we say as a church to surrender all of life to him and to, uh, and to be in relationship with him. And do these things earn us the privileges? Well, no, the privileges are a gift of his grace given to us and they're his generosity. But, but every relationship has something for both parties to do. Like, I, I don't know, maybe you could brainstorm and think, like, is there ever a relationship where both parties don't have to bring something to it? And where we kind of get messed up is when we think, you know, this relationship with God, he just gives, 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 and he never asks anything. Um, and that's not, there's like no relationship where it's true that both parties aren't giving something to the relationship. Um, husband and wife, child and parent, um, boss and employee. Um, but God calls himself our king and our father. And if you're in a king's kingdom, 
Um, he calls you to obey him and submit to him. And if you're in a father's family, the father calls you to obey him and submit to him. And God's our father, and so we want to do that. God's our king, and so we want to do that. But then on the other side, what happens when we fail to fulfill our responsibilities? There's these privileges, and there's responsibilities. What happens when we fail to uphold our responsibilities? What happens when we fail to do what God has asked us to do? What happens when we fail to obey God? What happens when we aren't righteous and blameless? What happens when we don't walk with him and when we wander away from him? Or, or you could ask it another way. What happens when our lives look like Abram's life and Sarai's life? What happens when our lives look like theirs? This mixed bag of faith and doubt, of obedience and disobedience, of trusting God and following their own ways. What happens when our lives look like Abram's and Sarai's life? How does God respond to them? Well, the answer is with grace. That's part of the privileges, is that um, God continually gives them what they do not deserve. God is eager to forgive them. God is eager to cleanse them of their sins. God is eager to wrap them in his arms when they come running back to him after they've gone astray. And God is eager to do all those things with us. God is eager to forgive us. God is eager to cleanse us from our sin. God is eager to take us into his embrace when we come running back to him. God is eager to pour out his undeserved, unconditional, unearned love out on us. And unconditional doesn't mean that God expects nothing from us. Unconditional love doesn't mean God expects nothing from us. And grace doesn't mean that God gives us no responsibilities. Just in the same way Hudson has my unconditional love, that doesn't mean I don't expect things from him and desire for him to obey me and submit to me and listen to me and trust me. Um, but um, the difference is grace means that when he doesn't do those things, that the relationship isn't in jeopardy. Unconditional love means my love for you isn't conditional upon your obedience to me and listening to everything I say. Um, it means that I forgive you and I'm eager to get, forgive you and eager to pay off you know, your debt you owe me for disobeying me. That's what unconditional love means. Um, and our relationship with God um, is not based on what we do. It's based on who he is and what he's done. And I have a, a mentor in my life um, who's quoting another person, but he says this, which I think is really helpful. Um, he says, grace is opposed to earning, not to effort. Grace is opposed to earning, not to effort. We don't earn God's love. Um, we don't earn God's grace. We don't earn salvation. Grace is opposed to earning, but it isn't opposed to effort because we put effort into our relationship with God. Um, I want Hudson to put effort into his relationship with me. I want him to want to please me. I want him to want to listen to me. I want him to want to, to know um, what I care about and what is important to me. Um, and so God reaches out to us, and we don't just say, like, cool, God, you know, just, you know, people who just keep, um, you know, what do we call kids who just get everything they want, um, but just live hot in whatever way they, they please? What do we call kids that get that? Spoiled. Spoiled. Yes. God doesn't raise spoiled kids. He raises kids who love other people, treat other people right, and who respect him and want to please him. And God doesn't do that. He doesn't raise spoiled kids. Even though he lavishes his love and grace on us, like God has things he wants us to do. And Abraham and Sarah's, li Sarah's life show us that God is in the business of redeeming and restoring broken people. God enters into relationship with people whom he knows are going to fail in the relationship, who he knows are going to stumble and disobey and have unbelief. 
And then, and look at Abram's life. Isn't that how our lives look? Doesn't our, doesn't our life look a lot like Abram's life and Sarai's life? But then look God, how God remains committed to them, is eager to bless him and reassure him and comfort him. Like, Abram, I'm still with you. And that's what he wants to do for each of us. The big idea for this passage is that God asks us to be and do what's impossible without him. And it's impossible for us to be blameless and righteous in God's sight. We'll never have an unblemished record with no sin or selfishness or disobedience. But remember in Genesis 15, when, for those of you who are here, Genesis 15, when was Abram counted righteous? When he believed God. So Abram was counted as righteous, as blameless, by his faith. In the New Testament, um, one of the big errors that was occurring in, the New, in Jesus' day and in Paul, Apostle Paul's day was that people were saying, look, you are righteous by works of the law, by circumcision and by following all the food laws and dietary laws and all the things that God commands. That's how you're made righteous. And then the Apostle Paul said, no, wait a minute. What happens before Genesis 17? Genesis 15 comes before Genesis 17 and it says, Abram was counted righteous by his faith, by trusting in God and believing in God. And the same is true with us. God credits us blamelessness, righteousness, by our faith in Jesus um, because Jesus, it all gets credited to us. And Jesus is everything we're supposed to be and he did everything we're supposed to do. And so us being blameless and righteous is impossible without him. And so we get credited that um, from Jesus' account. So, but that doesn't mean that God still doesn't say, but yet I want you to live righteously and blamelessly. You are righteous, that's your status, but I still want you to live a righteous and blameless life. That's, that's the bar. You can only be actually declared righteous by my grace, and you can actually only live righteous by my power in you, the Holy Spirit. Remember, in the power of the Holy Spirit is how we live our lives. And how does Abram respond to God's introductory words? Verse 3 says this, then Abram fell on his face. Abram responds by worshiping God in awe, in reverence, in humility, in surrender, in submission. And, and maybe you think about this. Like how often um, do you fall on your face before God? And I was having to think of that. Like, you know, when was the last time I just felt like I just fell on my face before God and like, like you are God Almighty. You're all powerful. And I'm just in reverence and I'm humble before you. And I just want to surrender to you. Like, how often do we fall on our face before God, bowing down to him as our creator and father and king? And man, that should be an experience we're having um, very often, um, if not daily. And if you think about, so what Abram's at, or what God's asking Abram is, obey me, walk before me, be blameless. Um, and if you think about these four Gs, and when we hear God say to us, obey me, which of these four G's would help us, um, these four truths about God that I'll begin with G, which of these would help us respond to God um, in the proper way when he says, obey me? God is gracious. God is gracious. How does that help you respond? Uh, grace. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we don't, the end of it, I don't have to prove myself. My obedience doesn't prove myself to him. He's gracious. And the command, you're saying the command even comes from grace too? Yeah, God is uh, God giving us direction is a gracious and loving thing. He doesn't have to do that. We said, you know, Adam and Eve said, we want to go our own way, God, and then God's still telling us like, hey, you know, actually this is a, a you know best way to live. That's God's grace. We don't deserve that. 
on that note, the same note, God is good. And so that we know that his command is good for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's saying the things he's asking us to do, it's good for us to obey it, yeah. It's like taking medicine or something. That's why your doctor prescribes it. Why does God prescribe the things he prescribes? Anything else? By obeying, you're basically saying that God is great and that you know that he is in control and you don't need to. Hmm, because you might be like, I don't know why you're asking me to do that, but you're in control, you're great, you know. Yeah, and glorious we might we could say, um, maybe it seems really countercultural, or like it would get us a lot of tension if I obeyed God in this way. You know, like people are gonna really notice me. I'm gonna really stand out, and we can say, well, you know what? God is glorious. He's the most important. He's the most weighty. His opinion matters the most, and so I don't need to fear what others think. I'm gonna do what He says, even if other people are gonna think I'm weird. If you haven't noticed, <clears throat> one of my goals is that we would all have these memorized by the end of the series. Um, so we're going to keep returning them because these help us to live a life of repentance, of turning from um, our sinful ways and our selfishness or our idols and turning to God. This, help, this helps us in that. So, Well, God says in verse 4, um, after Abram falls on his face, he says in verse 4, uh, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I've made you the father of a multitude of nations. And again, we hear the big idea. God asks us to be and do what's impossible without him. Abram is 99 years old. He's trying to have kids for a long time with Sarai, and they don't have any yet. But now God changes his name to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. Before it's even true of Abraham, he's not a father of a multitude. He doesn't have a multitude of kids. He has Ishmael. Um, who he had with Sarai's maidservant. Um, But he's not a father of a multitude, but God changes his name before it's even true of him. And he calls him something um, that's not even true of him yet. And that reality to be a father of a multitude is impossible without God. Which God makes clear in verse 6. He says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I'll give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. Whereas God told Adam and Noah, you be fruitful and multiply. Um, Now he's telling Abram, I will make you fruitful and I'm going to make you into a multitude. God is going to do it. And then verses 9 through 14, we're not going to go into detail, but uh, he starts instructing Abraham regarding circumcision. And this was a common practice of the day. Um, I'm not going to explain what it is. If you don't know what it is, you can look it up online or ask your doctor or something. Um, But uh, this is a common practice of the day, and Abraham uh, is given it as this symbol. It's kind of like, you know, rings. A ring isn't super special. Everyone can wear a ring. Um, But when you put a ring on a certain finger, now it symbolizes something. And God is saying, here's this thing that a lot of people are practicing, a lot of people are circumcised, but I'm going to make it something special. It's going to be this sign, um, almost like this wedding band of my commitment to you and your commitment to me. Um, Like, I'm going to do, I want you to do this with all your kids. 
Um, and now that Jesus changed that ritual for us to baptism, that's the, that's the sign that we do that when we say, like, I'm going to commit to Jesus, and we do it publicly in front of people um, to express our faith in him. And from this focus on Abram, next Sarai comes into focus. So let's read, ver read verses 15 to 16. It says, And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. So Sarai gets her name changed as well, but Sarai and Sarah basically mean the same thing. They mean princess, but God does this name change um, to signify this change that's going to happen in her future. Um, and last week we saw how Sarah gave her maidservant Hagar to Abraham when she was impatient waiting on God. And then Hagar becomes pregnant. And now it's 13 years later and they're thinking, okay, maybe this, this kid maybe is the one that God said he was going to give us. Um, but now God's like, no, Sarah is going to have a son. Um, she's gonna, you guys are going to get pregnant and it's not going to be Ishmael. Um, but then Abram, verse 17 says, Then Abram fell on his face and laughed. And said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abram said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And this time, instead of falling on his face in worship, in humility and reverence, Abram falls on his face and laughs at God. At, the, at this idea that, what? I'm going to you know, get Sarah pregnant when I'm ninety-nine and you know, she's um, not far behind me? And he says, please let Ishmael be the promised child. But God responds in verse 19. He says, uh, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Ishmael is going to be blessed, but the promised son is going to come through Sarah, who's barren, who's old, who hasn't been able to get pregnant for years, but God says that's going to be um, the person through whom we're going to make, uh, I'm going to bless the rest of the world. And God tells Abraham his son is going to be named Isaac, and Isaac means he laughs. Um, when, God, when Abraham falls on his face and laughs, in the original Hebrew language, it says, Abram falls on his face, and he Isaaced. And then he's like, you know what? You're going to name your son Isaac, uh, because you're going to remember, you, know, you, you laughed. You didn't think this was possible. And you're going to remember like, that, you, uh, that nothing is impossible um, when it comes to God. This is, you know, he, God introduced himself. I'm God Almighty, um, and I have all strength, all power, all might is in my hands. Um, and anything is possible for me. And then chapter 18 starts a new scene. God appears. We're going to just go over it quickly. And then next week, we're going to back up and, and cover these first 15 verses again. It starts a new scene. And this, these 15 verses go um, kind of with two different passages. But um, this covers a similar conversation that God just had with Abraham. But Abraham's sitting in his tent. It's hot out. It's a lot of times he's sitting in the heat of the day, sitting in the, the tent. Um, wind would blow through it, kind of like you know, air conditioning, but not really. Um, but he's sitting in his tent, heat of the day, sees these three guys coming, and he's like, oh, and he shows generous hospitality, which was a mark of really good character. Um, it is now, even today, in the Middle East, 
um, people are much more generous about hospitality. Like if you have a stranger come to your door, or you meet a stranger in your town, um, or heard alongside the road, you take care of them. You take them in, and you see lots of stories like this in Scripture. The Good Samaritan. Um, I had two in my head, but I only, one, only one's coming. But you see, um, hospitality is a big deal in the Middle East back then and now. Um, so Abram, he's like, oh, please, you guys are, you guys are on this journey. Come in here. Um, I'm, let me wash your feet. You know, sit under my shade tree, and I'm going to make you some bread. And I'm like, okay, go ahead and do it. But then Abram, he outdoes himself, um, which was often a common thing. Like, kind of, okay, let me give you this meager offering. And then people would actually do, like, this really big feast. And so he makes a bunch of bread, he has a, a, a calf killed, um, he gets some yogurt, that's what the curds are, um, and he makes this big feast for them, washes their feet, and then he goes um, and has them eat. And as they're sitting there, um, at first it's not really clear that this is God um, with two of his angels sitting before him, but eventually it becomes clear to Abram, or Abraham now, his name has been changed, um, when God asks in verse 9, where is Sarah your wife? And then Abram says, well she's in the tent, and then God says the same thing now that he said to Abram earlier. I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And then it goes on, um, the rest of verse 10. Um, so let's look at chapter 18, verse 10. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Verse 11. Now Abram and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. And so Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out... And my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. Sarah's listening responds the same way Abraham did. Um, really? Um, now that I'm this old, you think I'm going to have a kid? And then she's like, my monthly cycles aren't even. You know, she's way past menopause. She's like, you know, the way of women has stopped with me, she says. So how in the world am I going to have be pregnant next year? And God addresses Abram and then Sarah. And he goes straight to the heart of the matter with this powerful question in verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? For the Lord. Think about that for yourself. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And I wonder what we think is too hard for the Lord. And so if you don't if you have a bulletin or if you don't, grab just grab a bulletin here, I'll grab them for you. If you don't. Does anybody not have one? If you got one. And a pencil. I guess we need that too. But there's no pens. Here's one pencil. Oh, Katie's going to go get them. Um, so I want you to write, find a blank spot, and leave a little room on the left of it, and write this. We're going to make a list. Write, too hard for God, and put a line under it. This is your too hard for God list. Now we're going to make a list of things that we act like are too hard for God. Um, perhaps there's things that you never pray about because you just don't believe God could do anything about it. 
know, sometimes we're like, no, I ask God to do lots of things. I believe there's lots of things he can do. But what are those things that are bothering you, frustrating you, burdening you? And what are things that you feel this about? Despair or alone or crushed or heavy or overwhelmed by and you're not praying about them. Um, what are those things? Maybe you don't believe God could do anything about your relationship issues or your money issues or job issues or parenting issues or attitude issues. Like, man, I just always have this bad attitude towards people and maybe you're not asking God. Maybe you have sins in your past that you think are too hard for God to forgive. Maybe you have a habit or addiction that you think is too hard for God to relieve you of. Maybe you have a relationship that you think is too hard for God to heal. Like, I have this relationship in my God life. In, in my life, God, I feel overwhelmed by it. I feel alone. I despair. Um, but yet you're not asking him to change it. Or maybe there's someone in your life that you'd like to be saved, that you'd like them to come to know God, but you don't pray for them or talk about your faith to them because you don't, because you believe it's too hard for God to save them. Oh, they're just too far gone. They just hate God too much. They don't like religion. Um, there's, they'd just be too hard. That's, that's often one, one of the ones I feel is that, um, you know, I can tell who I think God can save by who I pray for. Um, it's like, okay, these couple people, those seem like likely candidates that God could save. Oh, but these other people, I don't pray for them because I, don't, I believe it's too hard for God to save them. So that's your too hard for God list, and we'll come back to that. But the good news is that nothing is too hard for God. Nothing is too hard for God. He is God Almighty. There's no wall he can't break down, no chasm he cannot cross, no height he cannot climb, there's no depth he cannot reach. He is God of all strength, all power, all might, all sufficiency, all provision. Nothing is too hard for our God. And our list of things that are too hard for God, it should, it should look like this. Blank. Nothing is too hard for God. This is what our list should look like when we make it. And nothing being too hard for God means that he's capable of taking our messed up, broken lives and making them whole. He's capable of taking all the sins we've ever committed and removing them from us as far as the east is from the west. He's capable of taking ungodly, unrighteous people and declaring them righteous and blameless and forgiven and cleansed in his sight. He's capable of taking our debt against him and paying it all off. God is capable of freeing us from the penalty and the power and the presence of our sin. God can totally transform our lives. And Sarah looks at her barren. Let me return to the big idea first. God calls us to be and do what's impossible without him. And Sarah looks at her barren, unproductive, fruitless womb, and she says, this is impossible. And then God says, wait, Sarah, is anything too hard for me? And he gets her to look, look away from yourself. You're, they're both looking at themselves. We're old. We're advanced in years. The way of women has ceased with me. God, this is impossible. And God says, stop looking at you. Start looking at me, Sarah. Is anything too hard for me? He wants us to look away from ourselves and to look to him. And sometimes in life, um, why well, work out um, or used to at least. Now that Hudson's here, I don't do anything besides pick him up. But this exercise is called what? Bench press. Bench press. Bench press. 
you know, when people are working out and they want to be macho, at least guys, first thing you go to, bench press. You want to bench as much as you can. Um, and so with the bench press, you know, you rack your weights on the side, um, you, do, you do your lifts. Um, and if you're wanting to feel really good, you put like way less weight um, than is like your maximum. And so you're just like super fast. And then everyone's looking, you can go, oh yeah, you know, that feels really good. But when you start getting to like your maximum weight, you put that on there, then it's a real struggle. And it's like, okay, that's the most I could ever do. But who's, but if you have a good workout partner, so who's this guy? Does anybody know what this person's called when they're helping you? A spotter, yes. When you have somebody spotting you, that makes you capable of doing more weight than you could ever do by yourself. And a good spotter, a good workout partner, um, I had a really, I had a bad experience with a workout partner once. Um, I was in a gym, I was doing bench press, um, and when I was doing it, he like wasn't paying attention, I don't know, he was looking off, and I kind of like got tilted a little off to the side, and so the, we didn't put clips on, so the weight went and then the, the then it went toosh, and then I was just like, what the? And he's like, oh, you know, and I was like, so that was a workout partner that was hard to trust because you know he he let me fail. Um, I, he should have been helping me keep balance, or and he he let me fail. Um, and a bad workout partner would also let you you know you'd be trying to push and it just sits on your chest, and then you're just like, I can't do this, and they're just watching you. That'd be a bad workout partner. They're letting you fail, but a good workout partner. Um, if you have one and they're spotting you and you're pushing and you're like, I can't push it anymore, they put their fingers under that and then they can help you get it up the rest of the way. And they allow you to do more weight than you could ever do by yourself. And sometimes we, we might read what God asks, us, asks of us in Scripture. We might read um, the commands He gives us when He says, Obey me, be blameless, walk before me. And we feel like, God, you know, with each one of these you're putting... A 45-pound weight on the bar. Ka-ching, ka-ching. Every command I read, 10 more pounds on it. And it's, God, I can never lift that. I could never do, get on that bench and lift all these commands you've given me. And he would say, exactly. You're not supposed to be able to lift that by yourself. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Because we're never supposed to lift all the commands of Scripture by ourselves. First John, it's First John five something, says the commands of God are not burdensome. When you hear God say, "Do this," it's not supposed to be like putting weights on and you feeling like you have this heavy burden. And we're not supposed to feel like this when we're hearing God's commands, "Obey me." And then we're like. I'm so f- afraid of disappointing you. This is crushing. This is heavy. I feel alone. Like, really? Is this what you want me to do? I feel overwhelmed. Um, you're setting me up for failure. But God, um, if you want to think of a workout partner, I wouldn't encourage that being your main image of him. But think of a father who wants his kids to obey and fathers who help their kids obey. And when they stumble and fall and fail, they say, it's okay. I, I forgive you. Um, and I love you. And how can I help you with this? And God... Gives us more than we can handle. And he says, I know I am. And you're never supposed to be able to do this without me. It's by my power in you. And when you do fail, I will forgive you um, for that. And sometimes um, we, we can just be like, you know what, God? I'm just going to put you know, the weights on. Um, 
that I know I can do. So, okay, this is really easy, low resistance. And then our lives are like, I don't see how that person's life is any different from anybody else's life who doesn't have the spirit. Um, it's because we're so afraid to put more weights on because we're like, I can't do that by myself. And we say, like, but, you know, but God is with me, giving the power, giving the strength. He's God Almighty. And when we believe that God calls us to be and do what's impossible, without Him, we can rest. Um, if we know it's impossible without Him, we can stop putting on a show for God. We can stop pretending that we have it all together. We can stop trying to prove ourselves to Him by our performance. And He already knows we can't do it. And so why try to put on a show for Him and say, you know, God, I've got this. He already knows that we're going to fall short. And I was really helped um, when Nick and I were meeting our Gospel Fluency group. This just Him pointing this out has been really helpful in the last several weeks, that it's safe for us it's safe and secure for us to be weak and needy with God. It's safe and secure for us to be vulnerable with God. He knows that we can not do it. And he knows we're incapable of following him without his power and strength. And if it's safe and secure to be um, weak and needy with God, that means it's safe and secure for us to be weak and needy with each other. Because we can live as God's family and not put on a show for one another. trying to, you know, like, hey, I've got this. We don't have to try to prove to anybody that we've got this Christian life down or we've got life down, that we've, you know, I've got a handle on this. We, it's safe to be weak and needy with each other. God knows we don't have it all together, so why do we have to prove to others that we have it all together? Because nobody's got this. Because God calls each and every one of us to do what is impossible without Him. And that's the point. We're not supposed to do it without Him. We don't need to pretend and perform to convince Him. But then on that, that's living as family. But knowing and acknowledging that we don't have it all together, that frees us to love others as servants because isn't it easy when we think, you know, I've got it all together, and then somebody comes and they're needy and they don't have it all together, and we're like, hey, get it together. You know, get your act together. You need to be handling this on your own. And we can be, compare ourselves and feel better. We can judge people. We can be annoyed. Like, this person has so many needs. This person needs so much help. Um, but if we know, you know what, I'm weak and needy, and I'm safe and secure before God in that. Somebody else comes to me that's weak and needy. It's like, yeah, I need tons of help. And so I'm not looking down on you for needing tons of help. And then knowing that we don't have it all together um, it allows us to go to other people, uh, to other people who don't have it all together and share Jesus with them. Because God has already done the impossible on us. Um, every single person who trusts in Jesus is a walking miracle. That's what the Bible says. And we often, maybe sometimes wonder, like, why doesn't God do miracles today? Uh, he does them all the time. Because the Bible says that without him, our hearts are hard and cold, and we are dead in our sins. And if you've, if you've trusted in Jesus, that's because God brought you from death to life, just like he brought Jesus out of that tomb from death to life. So everyone who trusts in Jesus is a walking miracle. And if God's done the impossible to us, he can do the impossible through us, he can use you when you tell others about Jesus, when you tell other people the gospel, he can use you to see miracles happen right before your eyes anytime somebody trusts in Jesus. I already feel emotional and I have this story I want to share. Um, so I probably won't be able to hold it together. But you know what? It's okay to be weak and needy and vulnerable. Um, my dad growing up... Um, kind of believed in God. He taught me to pray and thank God for, uh, you know, when we hunted, he's like, thank God for his creation. Um, but in many ways, he was kind of opposed to my faith when 
um, I started getting really into it, he was kind of like, I don't, you know, why would that be like first importance, like going to a youth group or going to whatever it is? Um, and I think in college, sometime in college, I started praying for my dad, um, asking God to save him. But it seemed one of those things where it's like, well, this is just probably too hard. Um, and I probably prayed for my dad for about five years, um, shared the gospel with him. On one occasion, I came back from a mission trip, and I sat my family down, and I said, um, I'd love to tell you what I did on this mission trip, but I'd actually like to show you. And I walked them to this gospel presentation that I um, had been doing the whole time on the mission trip, um, and I asked if, you know, do, you know, do you believe that? And I knew my mom and sister did, and my dad didn't answer. I said, Dad, do you, have you ever, like, you know, asked God to, like, surrender your life to him? And he's like, well, I pray, but I don't, haven't necessarily done that. And I was like, well, I, you know, encourage you to do that and you know another however many years three two three years passed um and my mom had probably been praying for my dad even longer um one time i remember he started going to church with my mom and i like we were out grouse hunting and i plucked up the courage you know finally by the end of the hunting time i was like you know dad why what why are you going to church i was you know trying to have a spiritual conversation with him and he was and he said well i gotta make your mom happy somehow and i was like you know, it's kind of like, you know, and I was like hoping to have a spiritual conversation. And I was like, I don't even know where to go from there. Um, but then six years ago, 2012, my mom called me and she was in tears. And uh, she said, your dad wants to be baptized and he wants you to do it. And uh, and he didn't want to call. I kind of felt... I don't know, it was too personal or something. So my mom called, and I was like, what? I want to talk to him about it, you know, because I don't just do that for the fun of it. Like, I do it because somebody's trusted in Jesus. And so I um, talked to him about it and asked, you know, kind of presented the gospel and said, well, I asked him why I wanted to do it at first. And he's like, well, you know, I want to be a better dad. And, like, you, your faith has really, like, inspired me. That, like, really made me start thinking about it. And then he said I was like, well, okay, that's not really why I baptized somebody. So I was like, you know, do you believe that the only way you can be saved and right with God and forgiven is through Jesus? And he said, absolutely. I think he might have been a person that I thought, after years, I didn't have to wait 25 years of prayer, but for God to save my dad and then to see the life change in him. And, you know, because it's like, okay, there's lots of people who get baptized and walk away. Then it wasn't real. Um, it's been real in my dad's life. People have commented on the change in his life. He, uh, there's one instance where this guy was just, he's, he does a lot of hunting things. He was part of this hunting group. There's like Conservation Congress and uh, I might not have been that. It was a group that he's very involved in. This guy was just bad-mouthing him, bad-mouthing him, bad-mouthing him. And uh, somebody asked my dad, like, doesn't that like upset you? And my dad said, "No, I'm praying for him because somebody who's acting like that must have a lot of hurt in their life." And just to see that transformation was a confirmation to me of like how God is working in my dad's life. And I tell you that story is just. Um, something I've seen God do. And so I want you to go back to that list. 
of things we wrote down that were too hard for God. And in front of it, write NOT in all capital letters, in front of too hard for God. You made that list, and it was your too hard for God list, but now it's your not too hard for God list. Um, those things you wrote down are not too hard for him. Nobody is too far from God to be saved. And let's end with this question for us to think about. What would happen if we lived a life that could only be explained by the power of God? You know, what if we were like, yep, put all the weights on the bench press, God. Like Everything you've said, I want to obey it all. And I know that you're here to give me the strength to do it. And we just lived a life that could only be explained by the power of God, by the Spirit of God living in our, in, inside of us. Um, and God waited waited 25 years to fulfill his promise to Abraham and Sarah. And I think he waited that long so that there was no doubt that this was done by the power of God. He waited until they were 9 years old and 99 years old. And why did he pick those people? There could have been, you know, some other young bucks he could have picked. Like, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. But no, he picked these old folks. And then he waited 25 years before he even fulfilled it. And they weren't only just old, but they couldn't have kids. And he said, no, I want your life. The only explanation for your life to be that it was by my power, by my grace, by me walking, working in your life. And wouldn't it be amazing if, if we were people in a community um, where our lives, you know, our community, what we do could only be explained um, by the power of God. Let's pray. Father, thanks for reminding us that nothing is too hard for you. Your arm is never too short to reach what you want to accomplish. And there's nothing, no barrier you can't overcome, uh, no obstacle too great. There's no enemy that is unable to be defeated by you. So Father, would you grant us to look to you as our Heavenly Father who wants us to obey, desires to obey, who wants to help us obey. Uh, would you let us look to you when we fail to obey and rest in your forgiveness and your grace and your power to help us do this. In your son's name we pray. Amen.